We're going to be in Luke chapter 3 again today. Series is Adventure. And uh, we're getting ourselves prepared for the Lord's second coming, and that will prepare us to celebrate with great joy his first. Let me read verses 7 through 14. This is about John the Baptist. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with, or literally worthy of, repentance. When I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but wonder why fruit production isn't automatic in people who've already repented. Why should John have to tell them to produce fruit? If they've repented, shouldn't that just happen? And I think the answer has to do with the nature of repentance. It isn't a one-and-done thing. Repentance, which is a rethinking of your life in the light of previously unrealized truth. Okay, Rethinking your life in the light of previously unrealized truth. It takes time to process. Repentance is like a sunrise. It brings light to a mind that was previously dark, but the mind is a vast undulating landscape. Repentance won't shine on all of it at once. Today, and I looked this up, the sun rose at 714 in New York City, rose at 802 in Coldwater. It it takes time for the earth to turn into its light, and it's the same for the human mind with all its vast reaches. It takes time for the light of repentance to reach across it, or rather, for our minds to turn fully into that light. Let me illustrate a a different way. Larry Knapp and I were in a taxi in Dakar, Senegal. You guys have been in Dakar? Have you ever been in Dakar? Oh, okay. Well, Dakar is a big city. It's a metropolitan area of about 2.5 million people. There are hundreds of thousands of cars, and there are about 12 traffic lights. I mean, so there, there are hundreds and hundreds of intersections without traffic lights or stop signs. I've seen one where the five roads come together and cars going in every direction and people walking across it and there's no traffic lights, no signs or anything. Well, Larry and I were in the city and we were getting ready to go back to where we were staying on the outskirts of the city. And we were taking a taxi and we're in a caravan of taxis carrying our people and we were in the last one. And we got separated from all the other taxis in a roundabout. That was a whole other thing, too. But when our driver finally got out of the roundabout, the other taxis were gone. We didn't know where they were. And he drove into this narrow alley, and he stopped. We didn't know what he was doing. But he rolled down windows on both sides of the car, and then he 
reached out and he pulled the side mirrors in. And then he hit the gas. <laughs> and the G-force was like the demon drop at Cedar Point. Vroom. About a half an hour later, I had this repentance moment. And what I mean by that is that the light of a previously unrecognized truth began to shine. It became apparent to me that our taxi driver, who didn't speak English, didn't even speak French, had no idea where he was supposed to be taking us. He was just following those other taxis. And so that truth dawned on me when I realized we've been on this street three times already, and we're just going around in circles. Repentance happens when one realizes one's true position in the dawning light of truth. I was granted repentance. I knew we were lost, but I didn't know what to do about it. I tried talking to the driver, but he just went, and I tried some French, and he just went like this. And so I didn't know how to produce fruit worthy of repentance. John didn't think of fruit production as automatic when someone repents. It's something he told people to do, and that means that we must have some part to play in it. It's not all up to us, thank God, or we'd have no hope, but we do have a part to play. We must bring our lives into line with our beliefs. When we realize, and this happens to repentant people repeatedly, not just once in the past, but it happens again and again across the years from spiritual nativity to spiritual maturity, when we realize that our practice doesn't match our profession in some way, that our life doesn't match our doctrine, or that our, our, our talk and walk don't match, then we take steps to change. An unchanging Christian is an oxymoron. Christians must always be in the process of change. For St. Paul says, we're being changed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. We can't be set in our ways and follow Jesus at the same time. We can't be set in our ways and expect to know his ways. It takes a lifetime to take one's life and make it fully God's. That's your role. Now, that's not what most people want to hear. We want a shortcut. Religion church, some spiritual practice that we can do and be done. People in John's day, they felt the same thing. They wanted to rely on something else, something easier, and in their case, it was their Jewish heritage. They thought that would make things right. So John says to them, don't even begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Many Jewish people believed that they were going to be grandfathered in, into the kingdom of God, through a connection with Abraham because of the covenant. They thought that admittance into God's kingdom, being accepted by God onto his side, hinged on ethnic heritage. If you were a Jew, you were in, unless you did something stupid and became a heretic. But John would have none of that. People were counting on the fact that they were Abraham's children. John told them, you're children of vipers. You're children of snakes. Now, here's the good news. God will accept even snakes if they're willing to become real men and women. But he's not going to run a DNA test to decide if they'll get in. He doesn't accept people on the basis of race or ethnicity. Now, we know that, right? The idea that acceptance with God would be race-based, that's anathema to us. 
but do we substitute some other identity marker in its place? We might. We might think, I'll be all right because I'm a member of Lockwood Community Church, or I'm a preacher's kid, or I've gone to church all my life. You know, what else could God ask of me? God will take me in because I'm a Calvinist, or I'm an Arminian, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm a free will Baptist. Listen, God will take you in because you are blood-bought, because Jesus died for you. You don't get into God's kingdom. You're not accepted onto his side because you're religious, because you're a church member. God doesn't check to see if you're good-looking or rich or poor or Protestant, or Catholic, or smart, or dumb, or white, or black. Don't depend on those things. Depend on God who gave his only son so that you could join him. Trust him. The people John was talking to thought, we're all right the way we are. I mean, we have Abraham as our father. We're part of the covenant people. We don't have to do anything. And John says, you better think again. The ax is already laying against the tree trunk. It's just a matter of time before the woodcutter goes to chopping. John is letting them know that a time is coming when it will be too late to make changes. The time for change is now. Later may be too late. John was like the guy that we used to see. If you're old enough, you used to see this guy in TV shows and movies and in comic strips, the guy who wore the sandwich board sign that read, the end is near. You know, he's always wearing a white robe and long hair and he looks crazy. He was a comic relief figure, a joke, crazy person. We all knew it. The end is near. Well, that's just nuts. But it's not nuts. It's biblical. John the Baptist believed it. St. Paul believed it. St. Peter believed it. Jesus believed it. They all believe that a day is coming when it will be too late to change sides. You can call it the end. You can call it the judgment. You can call it whatever you will. It's coming, and John is ringing the fire alarm. He urged people to rethink their lives in the light of what's coming. People in John's day connected to that message. They felt it was true. That's not always been the case. It wasn't John's day. That message hit home for them. It was true in St. Francis's day, in Martin Luther's day. It was really true from the 1830s through 1900 in our country. But at other times and in other places, that same message has failed to connect. In Malachi's day, people dismissed it. Toward the end of St. Peter's life, they scoffed at it. People living in Rome when St. Thomas Aquinas was there, made light of it. And that message certainly doesn't connect with most people living in the United States in the early 21st century. There seems to be a time when the Lord may be found and a time when he may not be. Do you remember what the prophet said? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The psalmist says something very similar. There have been historical eras when many people sought and found the Lord, when he was near and people turned to him, there have also been eras when that has not been the case. Though even then, there are personal moments when God draws near and individuals realize the message is true. The people who understood 
what John was saying, knew he was telling the truth, but they didn't know what to do about it. The sun was rising, but they didn't recognize the landscape or how to travel it. They chose to align themselves with God and his cause. They knew they had to do this, but they didn't know how to go about it. So they asked John, this is verse 10, what should we do then? If this is true and we feel it in our hearts, it's true, what do we do? John's response has implications for us. Helps us understand how to produce fruit that's worthy of repentance. He told the people, the man with two tunics should share with the one who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Now, if you hear that and you're thinking John's advocating socialism, he's not. If he were, he would say, force the man with two tunics to give up one. But he's not talking to the state here. He's talking to people like us. But neither is it capitalism. John doesn't say, let him who has tunics, two tunics recognize a financial opportunity and limited supply and high demand. It's, this is not Eastern Bloc socialism. It's not Western-style capitalism that John wants. It's kingdom of God love. Repentance, the rethinking of your life, what you do, how you live it, and the light of who God is opens your eyes and hearts to the people around you. Notice John didn't give people, this is really important, what should we do then? Notice that John did not give people some traditionally religious thing to do. When they asked, what should we do? He didn't say, fast for a week, or spend the night in contemplation, or read the Bible through, or light a candle, or say a prayer. John understood that repentance doesn't lead us to go somewhere else and do something religious. It causes us to live differently right where we are. If John were talking to us today and we said, what should we do? I suppose he would tailor his response to our setting. He would probably say to kids, treat your parents with respect. Let your sister borrow your clothes. He'd tell adults, use your bonus to help your neighbor who's unemployed. Take your aunt to the doctor. Spend time loving and interacting with your family. Repentance works itself out right where we are, right this moment, and moves us to where we should be. Now look at verse 12. It's really surprising. The last people we would expect to connect to John's message, the most despised people in Israel, the tax collectors, came asking him for guidance. What should we do? 99 out of 100 people living in Israel in John's time would have said, stop working for the Roman government. Give up being a tax collector. The money's not worth it. Stop it. That's not what John said. He told them, verse 13, don't collect any more than you're required to. Now, once again, he understands that repentance takes place where a person is, not where a person ought to be. Repentance is the most practical thing in the world. Look at verse 14. It's just as surprising as verse 2. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, some, these soldiers could have been Jews. There were Jewish soldiers. Herod had some troops stationed in Judea. And if these were his troops, they might have been some of the same men that he would soon send to arrest John the Baptist and to throw him into prison. But it's possible that these are regular Roman army soldiers. 
of Gentiles from the Syrian garrison who've heard the message and have responded to it. And once again, John met them right where they were. He didn't tell them to do anything that was too difficult, anything impossible. He didn't tell them to leave the military, for example. They were soldiers, and it was as soldiers that they would produce fruit worthy of repentance. You start where you are. In our day, as in theirs, most soldiers are stationed far from home and have no connection with the people living around them. That was true then. And soldiers often bullied locals. Some even extorted money from them. If locals didn't pay, it was a racket. If they didn't pay protection money to the soldiers, soldiers would report them for anti-government activities, which was a capital offense. Soldiers frequently complained about their pay. So this is that we saw last week. This is in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. When his reign began, there was the famous frontier mutiny that was led by soldiers protesting over low pay. And it got really ugly and lots of people died in it. So John tells them to stop strong-arming people and be satisfied with their pay. Again, repentance works itself out right where people are in their daily lives, in their jobs, not somewhere else where they ought to be. John didn't demand anything impossible, but that doesn't mean what he asked was easy. If you have two tunics and you give one away, you're going to have to wash twice as often, right? And your wife may be mad at you. What were you thinking? Your friends may make fun of you. If you're a tax collector who isn't getting rich, who doesn't do what everyone else does, your peers aren't going to want to have anything to do with you. If you're a soldier who doesn't act like the other guys, you'll get mocked and harassed. There's a cost to joining God's side, but there's also a gain. For one thing, you get a much simpler life. You get hope. You get friends who are real. Repentance helps us rethink our lives in the light of the God who sees us and not just through the eyes of the people around us. If you only see yourself, so it's, it's, almost, it's almost impossible to see yourself through your own eyes. So we have to do it through others. But if you only see yourself through the eyes of the people around you and not through the God above you, you will never be free. You'll never be yourself. Without repentance, you can't become your true self. If I see myself through your eyes only, I will be limited by your expectations. If I see myself through God's eyes, even though that reveals all the bad stuff, because he sees everything, I will be stretched by his plans for me. I'll become more than I could ever otherwise be. May God give us the gift of repentance. When we see previously unrecognized truth, we say, oh, we may not know how to respond to it. We may not know how to produce fruit worthy of repentance. The fire alarm wakes us up. We may go back to sleep or back to our old familiar paths. Research shows that most people don't respond when the fire alarm rings. I've seen it in this building. We had the fire alarm go off once and people just talked louder. What is that? Where are you going for lunch? Nobody moved towards the doors. A few months ago, Karen and I were in Chicago. We were in a hotel 
and in bed in the middle of the night, and the fire alarm goes off. And you know what I did? I got up, went and tried to call the desk. It took us 10 minutes to get dressed and get out of there. If there had been a real fire, we would have died in it. And, and according to research, that's what most people do. In 1985, a fire broke out at a soccer match in England, and television, they, we were filming the game, and so they caught this on TV. Most people in the stands didn't do anything. They didn't react. It took them too long to move towards the exits. 56 people died because they didn't do anything. Research also shows that when people do move in a fire, they tend to follow their, their old paths, the ones they know. For example, most people try to exit through the same door they enter, even when a nearer exit is available. So there was a fire some years ago at a, the Beverly Hill Supper Club in Kentucky. 177 people died in the fires. Huge tragedy. Forensic experts believe that many of the victims died because they tried to get out the same way they came in. And there was a bottleneck. They couldn't get out. Even though there were fire exits all around, they didn't use them. We can do the same kind of thing and go back to what we've known. Now, what is there for us in this strange prophet's ancient message? I'm going to mention three things. First, there is a fire coming. Fire of judgment and a time of change. And John sounds the alarm. That warning that things are going to change is at the heart of the Christian gospel. And our hearts tell us it's true. Don't try to go back the way you came. There's a nearer door. It's the only one that works. Jesus Go through him. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Go to him. Join him. Ask him to take you in. Then ask God for the blessed gift of repentance for yourself and for your friends. You can't manufacture it any more than you can manufacture the sunrise, but you can enter it. You can see what to do in its light. And if you think, like the people in this passage, there's nothing for me to do, that's proof positive that you need it. Ask God for it. And finally, start where you are. Otherwise, you're never going to start at all. Start living out what you know, even if it's just one thing. Start living it out in your home, in your closest relationships, where you work. If your faith doesn't even make it home with you today, what makes you think it'll make it to heaven with you someday? Here, now, live for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for giving us the blessed, sweet gift of repentance. And Lord, I pray that you'll continue to do so. You'll continue causing the light to shine 
until we're everything that you want us to be. Lord, for this gift and for all that you've done for us, we have Jesus Christ to thank. And we do. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.